Hey, I hope you're well. I'm Jeffrey. I'm the pastor here. And what you're about to listen to is our weekly podcast where we have my sermon from the previous week. So right now we're going through first... No, we're going through Colossians. That's right. And uh, chapter two is what we've covered this time, and I get into some kind of weird stuff. Uh, the divine counsel is something that Michael Heiser in particular has spoken about, and I I've listened to him for a few years. He died uh, just last year, but he was uh, just a, a remarkable man kind of reconstructing a biblical worldview, and it's really important for us as modern-day believers to understand spiritual realities around us that kind of our materialist culture denies or is ignorant of. So we're going to spend some time on that today, um, and so I'd encourage you to keep an open mind. My primary agenda is just to help people know what to believe in spite of the crazies, because, of course, there's crazies on all sides, and some people have uh, just a tendency to run away from anywhere where there might be crazies. But, you know, the thing is about the Christian faith is <laughs> there's there's a lot of crazies here. So, um, anyway, I, I hope you enjoy the time. And then before we get into it, I would just uh, make sure you know my daughter, Susanna, and I are starting on a new series that I'm putting on my uh, personal podcast page called Plain Spoken, but also I think we're going to be putting it on the church's uh, YouTube, Facebook, um, and so I would urge you to consider following along with that. We are going to be going through catechism questions provided by the Global Methodist Church, which is a body we just recently joined, and so we're going to be going through the fundamental beliefs of this body and walking through the scriptures, I, I think it'll be a good and worthy time. So feel free to join us for that as well. And I hope you enjoy whatever contact you have with us. I hope you come closer to Christ Jesus through it. I hope you come closer to his church. And um, as always, just I, I would ask you to pray for this church, pray for my ministry, that we would bear a lot of fruit. So hope you enjoy the next 30 minutes you take with me and my church. God bless you. It's time to attend upon God's Word. We, of course, are reading through the book of Colossians. Last week, I, I went through some pains to contextualize this. We're, of course, on page 1829. And the wonderful way about how Scripture works is it takes us in our context today, and it makes us, we have to understand the original context, but also the original context is held up against God's context, the, the, the kingdom of God. So... We have this worldly context, we understand another worldly context, and then we understand the, the context of God. And that's, we, we actually have two different models to compare ourselves to and discern God's path for us that way. So it's helpful to know about ancient Colossae. This is a book that Paul wrote from prison in Rome. And he, uh, he's writing because the guy who planted the church there, he'd heard Paul speak in Ephesus. And then he had gone to his hometown or home region. Colossae is there. Laodicea is there. And he has given the good news and people are following. But they're getting kind of wacky about it. Do people in small towns ever get kind of wacky? You betcha. They get wacky in big cities. They get wacky in small towns. It's just kind of a human nature thing. We get something pure and good and we got to screw it up, right? And so uh, that we do that with... Uh, the faith of Jesus Christ as well. Colossae is a, a small town. It had been kind of a city. It had been declining at this point. Of course, there is no Colossae. Today, there was a, a, an earthquake that wiped it out, but we know where it was, 
And so um, I, I thought it would be helpful today. Google Earth is an online resource. I don't know. I, I don't think we'll get sued for using it. But I took some screen grabs of where Colossae is today. The first one uh, starts us off from where we are in Nowata. So that's Nowata. And if you zoom way out and you go to the other side of the world, it's in modern-day Turkey. So that's where modern-day Colossae is. I've just got these things on report. Sorry if I give anyone motion sickness. This next one starts from outer space. Come on. There we go. So I kind of slowly zoomed in. You can see more detail about where we're going. So you'll see Colossae is right up there. And so whenever there was a, you see that place Honaz down there, whenever there was an earthquake, everybody from town left, abandoned it. This was over a thousand years ago, and they all went to that city Honaz. So not too far away. And then uh, let's see, let's go to the next one. That right there is an Ephesus. That's an amphitheater that's still around today. I would love to go there. And then there's Colossae right there. That's what it looks like. There's no city left. So where they had encountered the good news over here by the Mediterranean Sea, they took it inland. That's where we are, and then there's Honas. And then the final one I had was just a 3D. So, yeah, there's nothing but countryside around there now. But you see this river. Maybe you don't see this river. I do. They were on the riverside, and then that's Honaz, and then you have these mountains up here. So their ancient people lived on the riverside in this kind of backwater of the Roman Empire, and they're getting involved in kind of some weird stuff. So uh, I used this map last week. This has, you can't see it well enough, but it has the churches of Pergamon, Thyatira, Ephesus. These are the churches of Revelation. So Laodicea is one of the churches that Paul writes to in Revelation, and then Colossae is just right here southeast of there. And then that's just a simplified map. Uh, so if you're confused about where Colossae is now, I don't know what to do to help you. I've done, I've done everything I can. All right, so we're going to get into Colossians chapter 2. I told you last week, so hopefully it's not a spoiler alert, but what this church is dealing with is they're wanting to worship angels, intermediaries between us and Jesus, who sits enthroned at the right hand of God. They want their prayers to get up to God. They want to have a relationship with God. They've become convinced that there are powers, principalities, authorities. These are spiritual terms for ranks of angelic heavenly creatures that stand between us and God and that they felt they needed to appease in order to have their prayers raised to God. Paul is writing to correct this, saying, no, we have one mediator, Christ Jesus, who came as a ransom for all to whom we testify. We don't need to worry about these other angelic forces. So he's correcting them. The place where our culture is corrected, though, is we live in a thoroughly materialist culture, which means our culture really doesn't believe in things that we can't see, taste, touch, smell. If, if we can't in, encounter it in the physical realm, it's not real. What ancient cultures, what pretty much every culture has known until our very materialist culture is, there is a whole spiritual realm that is every bit as real, real as the physical realm. But just because it's real doesn't mean we need to play by the rules that whatever spiritual beings tell us are the case. So the, the question is, given that the spiritual realm is real and that Christ sits atop of it, how ought we to act today? So for them back then, it's about realigning their spiritual emphasis. For us today, what I really want to work on you about is your understanding of the heavenly realms being as great as they are. We need to understand that there are a lot of powers 
that compete for our attention and affection. And if we don't understand they're even there, we're not going to see them for what they are. We're going to think that they're legitimate because we have a strong feeling or something makes sense to our brains. These are not legitimate ways of figuring out what the truth is. The truth is known only through God's word. That's why we're attending upon his word right now. Sometimes if we're blessed, our senses, our experiences do fit God's word. But when they don't, that doesn't mean that we're right and God's word is wrong. Rather, it's the opposite. It means my feelings, my thoughts are wrong. God's word is right. That's why we're, this is the most valuable time we can spend is meditating on God's word because this is the, the standard by which all reality, all truth, all beauty is measured. Or rather, God is, and this points us to him. All right, we're on page 1830 in your pew Bibles, starting in verse 1. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. Remember, Paul did not plant these churches. They were planted by this other guy. Why am I forgetting his name? It began with an A, Epaphroditus, something like that. Who remembers it? Nobody? Huh? No, it wasn't Apollos. Um, Apollos was a great one, too. Epaphras. There it is. Thank you very much, Epaphras. So Epaphras is the one who has planted it. He is now visiting Paul, telling him their business, and he's saying, I'm really praying for you. I'm really going to battle for you. Verse 2, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Now, last week, he already talked about the mystery, right? The mystery was Christ in you, which means that you have direct access to Christ, that he is in you, he's sanctifying you. You don't need any other mediator. He is in you. There are people in this church, in this region, who are saying, look, there's all kinds of knowledge, deep hidden knowledge, but you can only have access to it when you've served the right angels in the right way. He's saying, no, 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 no. If you want the fullness of wisdom, the fullness of knowledge, the fullness of love and glory, that's to be found only in Christ, and he is in you. You have what you need. That's what I'm praying that you understand and experience. That's what he's saying here in verse 2. Verse 3, he continues talking about Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do you think all means all? Yeah. Last, last week in chapter 1, he was saying all things were made in Christ, through Christ, by Christ, for Christ. All things are in him. If you have him, do you need anything else? No. You got these guys trying to fool these people who've received the pure word, the pure gospel, into thinking they need more than that. And that is, that is, that is a gospel from the evil one. That's not a gospel. Verse 4. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. We live in a world right now where there are all kinds of fine-sounding arguments that don't fit together. That's how you explain the great division in our culture in particular right now. Very smart people on all sides who have wonderful ways of, of justifying themselves and what they want, and they really think it's true. I don't think we're surrounded by liars. The reality, though, is that they're tapping into spiritual realities that are not in alignment with God. They're not liars. They're being completely honest about the truth as they see it, but they are deceived because there are many spiritual powers that are deceived. We'll talk more about this, but here he's saying there are people in your churches that make wonderful arguments. They sound so clever. They're so smart. Uh, of course, they are enticing you. I'm, I'm writing you so that you won't be enticed. Verse 5, for though I am absent from you in the body, I am present with you in spirit, and I delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. 
So these people haven't been just completely swayed. They're doing a good job, but there's this element that really has a threat, and that's what he's writing about. He's also writing, I don't know if you remember when we were in 1 Corinthians, and there was that guy who had an inappropriate relationship with his mother-in-law. You remember that? And he said, next time you guys are together, I will be with you in spirit, and in the power of my spirit, you guys kick him out of the church. And so there's this notion that we, even though we have these bodies, we're not limited to these bodies, that we can be present with one another even though far apart. So that's why we believe that homebound people can be with us in spirit. People who have been traveled or entrapped afar can be with us in spirit. Even to some degree, those who have died and gone on, their spirits are still in some sense with us. I don't want to get too into that. People, people focus on this too much, but the reality Paul is saying here is, I am with you spiritually. Even while we're alive, we can be in other places spiritually. That's why we often pray for the persecuted church. People around the world who are being persecuted, we believe that we're connected to them by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? So that's what he's tapping into. He's saying, I am present with you in spirit, and I'm delighted with what I see in you guys. Verse 6, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, did they already? Yeah, they're a church. They've already been established. Continue. To live your lives in him. What a novel concept. You got saved? Keep following Jesus. We live in this really weird time. And you see, it's, it's been a temptation from the very beginning. I got saved. I received Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. Now back to my old ways. No, 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 no. You walk in newness of life. We'll talk more about this, but this is what he's establishing here. If you are saved, continue being saved. If you are in Christ, walk in Christ. Verse 7, be rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with, last week he talked about being joyful, now it's thankfulness. Both. This is in the context of Roman persecution. This is in the context of living in a backwater where there's bad things happening. He's saying our faith must always be marked by joyfulness and thankfulness. But in the meantime, it's also to be marked by following Jesus, learning about him. Walking in the way that he said to walk, and, and biblically speaking, walking is living. Our daily lives are to be governed by our boss, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen? Verse 8. See that no one takes you captive through hollow, deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. So we've already encountered this concept that there are attractive arguments being made, Sounds full of truthiness. You know, Stephen Col Colbert, I, I, I don't like him nowadays. I think he's kind of smarmy. But he used to have this character that he played on the Stephen Colbert show where he, he actually coined the term truthiness. It's something that's not true, but it sounds true. And that's what we're, the world has always been dealing with. There's only one truth, and it corresponds with God, right? But there are lots of competing truths that have a semblance of truthiness, and that's how they fool people. And he's saying, you can't be fooled. There's all kinds of human tradition and deceptive philosophy that if you don't stay on your guard, if you don't maintain some discernment, you're going to fall for, and you will not be in Christ. And there is no salvation outside of Christ. So the stakes are high here. He's saying, just because it makes sense to your stupid brain doesn't mean it's right. Anybody got a stupid brain like mine? And we go, well, it makes sense to me. It must be the truth. That's not how truth works. The question is, does it comport with God and his word? Verse 9. Well, no, wait. Before we move on, verse 8, he started talking about elemental spiritual forces. 
We don't have this concept today because we live in these synthetic environments full of things that we created. But in all cultures around the world, whether you're talking about Native American or shamanistic, pagan, ancient cultures, they understand that there is a spiritual reality to all of creation. Rocks, trees, oceans, plants, all of these things have a spiritual reality that they can comport with, they correspond with. And so there are people who will discern the spiritual reality of these things and go, uh, uh, this is reality for us. And the answer to that is no. No, all of reality, all of creation has been corrupted, right? That's what the fall is. We're not the only things that are screwed up. Everything around us is screwed up. The spiritual realm to which it corresponds is screwed up. So again, I have to say it. He's not rebuking flat-out lies. It's not that they're imagining these spiritual forces. There are spiritual forces that are giving them truthiness. But deep down, they don't correspond with Christ Jesus. There is no salvation in them. So verse 9, for in Christ, that's where we are, right? Verse 9, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Remember, power and authority, these are words that are used for spiritual powers. So he's saying, Jesus is high over them, and he is in you. You are not separated from him. You don't need to go through them to get to him. He is the head over every power and authority. Who, what also is he the head of? The church. Yeah, we were talking about this last week. Verse 11, in him... You were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. What did circumcision symbolize in the Old Testament? Well, yeah, it was tied to the Old Covenant. What did it mean whenever a, a male Hebrew child was circumcised? That's membership in the covenant community. So it's an initiation ceremony. It's a, it's a sacrament. In the, to use our words, it's an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Christians do practice circumcision, but not of the flesh. It's of the heart. We were circumcised by Christ Jesus spiritually, and that means we have been initiated into his holy covenant community. What's the name for that? The church. Yeah, baptism, he connects it to. But the holy covenant community that we're all a part of is the church. The church is not a building. It's not a steeple. It's not a resting place. It's a covenant people. What, what else defines us? Um, so let me start at verse 11 again. In him, you were also circumcised. Even if you're a woman, you have a spiritual circumcision, not performed by human hands, your whole self ruled by the flesh. That's all of us born. We're born ruled by the flesh. Our whole selves put off by the, were put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism. So here's where it connects the circumcision to baptism. We're not, spirit, we're not physically circumcised. We're spiritually circumcised, and that's tied to baptism. In which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So this is why I and many others are confident that it's appropriate to baptize babies. Because in the Old Testament, did people circumcise babies? Yes. They were welcomed into the covenant community before they understood it. And so if, if our salvation depends on us understanding things, well, then we're all doomed because we're all morons, right? Compared to God, we don't understand the fullness of his mysteries. It's not about what you understand. It's about if you're a faithful member of the community of Christ. 
And so we welcome babies into that and then teach them how to live into that. So this, this, this linkage right here between circumcision and initiation and baptism, it could not be any more clear. But it's, 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 a, very, it's a very big thing to be baptized. And just because you shove somebody under the water doesn't mean they're baptized, okay? So I don't mean to, there is not a one-to-one -one correspondence. I got baptized. Now I'm saved. He's already made very clear. You need to continue walking in Christ if you are to be saved. We, he had an if clause last week where it was very clear, if you continue in the faith that you've been given. This is a non-negotiable thing. But when you have been initiated into the body of Christ, there are a number of other things that have happened. Let's look at Romans chapter 1, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Of course, I don't have it pulled up in front of me. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Do you all remember this passage? Super key. By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? When did we die? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may lead a new life. You see the correspondence here between Colossians and Romans? For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin may not be done away with, that we should... No, wait. Might be done away with. That, well, I don't know why I put a not in there. The body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. So that's another thing that baptism does. Baptism corresponds with circumcision. Baptism is a death to the old ways and a birth to new ways. And that's what undergirds his language here in Colossians as well. You were born in sin, slaves to sin. You died to sin through the spiritual circumcision, which is baptism. You're now members of Christ's holy family, the church. And through that, you now walk in newness of life. I'm really proud of how simple I made that sound. That's, that, that's exactly what he's saying here. Verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. That's your story. If you have been initiated into the covenant community, if you've received true faith, then you, this is your story. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away nailing it to the cross. It talks about here having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. Are you legally in debt? To God, you are. God is a righteous judge. And on the day of the Lord, we will be called before our righteous judge who sits on his judgment seat, and we will have to answer for all the crimes committed against him. Are any humans guiltless of the crimes for which we are charged? We are all guilty. We are all guilty. So children, how can we be saved? Only by... Okay. In case you couldn't hear the mumbling. Only by faith in Jesus Christ and in his substitutionary atoning death on the cross. Substitutionary is a key word there. Susanna, I'll put you on the spot. What does substitute mean? Taking someone else's
place. And Jesus is the substitute. Where did he take our place? On the cross. That's where we belong. That's where every single one of us belongs because of the guilt of our crime and sin against God. But we can be saved when Christ's blood is applied to us. That's what he's talking about here. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. I don't think I could be any more clear on this stuff. I hope it's crystal clear in your brain. Verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, remember those are spiritual powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The world looked at the cross, they saw a humiliated Savior. In a spiritual sense, Christ was dominating all of the powers and authorities of this world whenever he took his place on the cross. Is this where we take a detour? Oh yeah. There are a number of scriptures that we need to, to understand these spiritual powers and authorities here, I'll just take over for a little bit. This is Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. One of the weird things about this passage, that word, us. A lot of Christians look into that backwards and go, that must be the Trinity. That's not really the historical biblical understanding of what's going on here. Instead... This is. This is, a, this is in the Nuremberg Bible. It's several hundred years old. That's Adam right there asleep, something coming out of his side. What do you think that is? Eve, right? Remember, she was made out of his... And so that's God bringing her out of his side. That's also God pouring out. You see all the animals here. That's, that's uh, uh, Eden, right? You have God up here. But then look at all these. These also are in the same form as one another. The notion here biblically is that God created the spiritual realms and its inhabitants before the earthly realms and its inhabitants. So God made spiritual beings in his likeness, and then he did with them what he does with us. He shares authority with them. That's the kind of God we have. He's not jealous about authority. He is jealous about love. He gives out his authority, and he says, hey, spiritual beings, rule in my stead. Bring people to me. And that's what we're to be as well. We're the ones made in his image. We are supposed to uh, hold his authority over all creation as kings and queens of creation. That's what he's created us to be. So when he says, let us make in our image, he's talking to those guys there. That's the biblical historical understanding. This is called the divine council. These are the heavenly beings that God shares his authority with. Now, he's still the one who does the creating, but he invites heavenly beings and earthly beings to be involved in the work of sanctifying all creation. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 7 through 9, um, that's Moses' last will and testament, he describes what the heavenly council did. Remember the days of old, consider the generations long past. Ask your father and he will tell you, your elders, and they will explain it to you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. Now I'm going to do something that I hate when pastors do, and I'm going to tell you this translation is corrupted. That word right there, we actually know doesn't belong there. That's from the Masoretic text in Hebrew. And I'm not going to bore you with all these details, but we have more ancient texts where that word is not Israel, it's God, the sons of God. The sons of God are God's divine counsel. 
Here it's talking about when God set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the divine council. Do you all remember when the peoples were divided and given different cultures and languages? After Babel. God divided the nations and then he had his divine council and he said, this one, Assyria, is yours. This one, China, is yours. He divided them up according to the number of the sons of God. That's what Moses himself is saying here. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. So the notion is that God took one nation just for himself. That was the nation of Israel. Remember that. We're going we're gonna to come back to this. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. This is before Moses. I know we're kind of zigzagging around, but it's an important concept. This is before the flood, right before the flood. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them. You remember this? The sons of God. Remember, we just saw the sons of God. The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters, there's that again, sons of God, you see it, went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was evil at that time. The Lord regretted he made humans on the earth. His heart was deeply troubled, so he said, I'm going to kill them all through a flood. Um, the notion here that we need to hold on to is, did God make us? Did we get corrupted? God also made heavenly beings that were corrupted. And the whole heavenly realm corresponds with this realm. So corruption in the heavenly realms corresponded with a corruption in the worldly realm. Now, a lot of people at this point are just going to be like, this is crazy. This is just crazy. And I'm going to tell you, you're crazy. This is what the Bible talks about. I'm connecting these dots for you. We live in this very materialistic uh, time where we go, oh, this is just all myths from ancient cultures that didn't understand science. That's from a science-worshipping culture. Now, science, there's nothing wrong with science. Christianity created science, by the way. But science is under the lordship of Christ Jesus. And we've told, been told the spiritual reality of these things. It's just uh, for, it's up to us whether or not we're going to believe it or we're just going to go, no, everything is under the control of physics and chemistry, and we're, we're just fine here. There are spiritual realities that have been in rebellion against God from the beginning. God had the sons of God established over the nations. They screwed it up, and they came down and were with women, screwed up all of creation. God wiped it out. Then through Noah, he built up new nations. But again, there was a heavenly rebellion, and there was a worldly rebellion. So God scattered them, and he gave the nations their inheritance and the sons of God and that's been going on ever since. Psalm 82. Anybody ever read this one? This corresponds with this concept. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. Puts it in quotations there because there's but one God. But these are the sons of God. These are the ones that he has given his authority to. He says, how long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons. You see sons of God. I hope, man, I hope you're getting, if this is the first time you're encountering this, I hope you're, you can be skeptical, but I hope you're going, 
there really are a lot of connections here. Sons of God, of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. So God gave authority to these spiritual sons of God, these spiritual powers. They screwed it up. They're not administering things in a godly way, so God is going to take it from them, kill them, and all the nations are now God's. And that's where we are in the story. Through Christ Jesus, God has claimed all the nations. That's what we're a part of now. But what that means is, oh, sorry, I don't want to distract you. What that means is we now rebuke all other gods. The other gods were put in place to lead us to God. They are not doing that. So, you know, I, I let my kids watch shows with other spiritual realities sometimes, and they understand these are not spiritual forces that are in alignment with Christ. They sound good. They look good. They are not good. Christ alone is good. And that's the world we live in. We have a world with lots of different religions, lots of other competing spiritual realities. And I'm not saying they're lies and their imaginations. No, they're very real. It's just the reality of them is damnation. They're leading people away from Christ. There is only one way to Christ, and it's Christ himself. And the mystery is Christ in you. The reality is that Christ has adopted you, has adopted all the nations. You're now his. So if you're spending any time whatsoever on other spiritual realities other than Christ... You are royally screwing up and rejecting your salvation. Does this have anything to do with some Christian theologies? Yes, it wholeheartedly rebukes Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic understandings of how our prayer lives should work. If you've ever known anybody, and I, I know they're lovely people, but if you are praying to an angel, if you're praying to a dead person, you are guilty of the sin of the Colossians. You are putting your trust in someone other than Christ, and for, there are huge spiritual ramifications for that. So I'm going to back off a little bit, show you some nerdy stuff. So back in the times, biblical times, there were these people called Gnostics. They didn't call themselves Gnostics. That's just a whole family of ideas that we call them by today. And they came up with these different understandings of the spiritual realms and what we needed to understand. I'm going to show you three diagrams that people who read these guys have reconstructed. And in the diagram, you're always going to notice there's God on one side, there's man on the other and then there's all this mess in between. All this mess in between is the powers, principalities, authorities that Paul is talking about in Colossians. So you'll see rulers here. You'll see that there is some boundary or barrier between the spiritual world and the physical world, and you have to know all these other deities, and it's only then you can get to Christ who gets you to the Father. You see this? Paul would look at that and go, that's ridiculous. Don't even worry about all this stuff here. The only ones you need to worry about, there's some trying to trip you up. You got to rebuke them. There's others trying to help you along the way. Cooperate with them. Go towards Christ. Are angels real? Yes. So this is another one. You have God up here, the one parent. You have us down here, the fallen Adam and Eve. And then you have some of these characters and some of these forces. You have forces that kind of overlap with heaven and earth, only those in the spiritual realm. We look at this and go, how silly. But back then, people were tapping into the spiritual realm and they were talking about it and people in the church needed to understand this stuff. Oh, let me tell you, you have to, we'll get back into, we'll finish the chapter here in a minute. It becomes clear they're getting instructions on, okay, to appease this God over here, you have to do this and this and this. And then for your message to get to Jesus, you have to go over here to Ortel and you have to do these things. Paul is rebuking all of this. These are, uh, so one guy was Valentinian, Valentinius, Another guy was Seth. They both had, here's God up here, here's us down here. God up here, 
us down here. And then there are all these intermediary characters and a boundary or barrier. So it doesn't matter that you can't read it. There's no salvation in it. This is what is described in Revelation, right? Here's God enthroned above. Here's the, the four beasts, right? The 24 elders around the throne and then the heavenly host all around. This is described in Revelation. So that's just to say these spiritualities, realities are real. Some of them are in submission to God. A lot of them are not. These are the ones that are in submission to God. If you don't know what I'm talking about, read Revelation. It's awesome. And then finally, this is the main guy that I've learned things from, Michael Heiser. And he describes the, the setup as it is. You have God at the top. You have the sons of God, these intermediaries that have failed. And then you have the angels who haven't necessarily failed. Some of them are in rebellion. Some of them aren't. But um, if, if you want to know more about Mike Heiser, I mean, he's only based in the Bible. He just kind of, but he compares it to other ancient Near Eastern texts and some of the stuff that we don't see when we're reading in English 3,000 years later, he picks up on and, and opens it up. So Sarah Beth's read some Heiser. Whitney, Vicky's read some Heiser. Very helpful for this stuff. All right, so we're going to close out the chapter now. We're in uh, verse 16. Keeping all these things in mind, we just learned about the spiritual realms and the kind of leadership that's going on. Susanna, I will move you. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Or with regard to what religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found, surprise, surprise, in Christ. He's kind of being repetitious, isn't he? If you just read this through, you don't necessarily get it. But here he's rebuking all these things. He's saying, just focus on Jesus. Just focus on Jesus. 18, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. He's being very explicit here, right? So I haven't been connecting all these weird dots. He's very People are worshiping angels. They're putting all these additional burdens on people. He's saying, don't let that happen. Such a person, these people that are doing this, they go into quiet, great detail about what they have seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. So this is an insult because they're giving, they've gotten spiritual vision. They're talking about real things in the spiritual realm, but they're focusing on the trees rather than the forest. They're, 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 they're getting distracted on the, the things between them and Christ when Christ is the beginning, end, and middle of that story. So he's saying what, they might be able to see some things, but they are utterly unspiritual. Verse 19, they have lost connection with the head. Who is the head? Christ. Christ is the head of the body from the church, the church, from whom the whole body, the church, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. So he's saying if you're separated from Christ as a church, then your church is a chicken body that's running after its head been cut off. I guess that's something that happened. I've never seen it. But the notion is you're not really alive. You're moving. You have some body heat left. You're dead. If you have lost your connection to Christ, he is the head of the body. If you're all of a sudden spending all this time on these angels and other spiritual realities, you're, you're dead. You have, you have forsaken the gospel. Verse 20. Since you died with Christ. When did we die with Christ? Baptism, spiritual circumcision. Since you died with Christ to the elemental forces of this world, some people don't realize when they say yes to Christ, they're saying no to all the other spiritual realities. You died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. Why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Now, that's a rebuke for us today, right? 
Because how many of us are worldly in our disposition? More concerned about fitting in with the culture and norms around us rather than pleasing Christ. He's saying, you said no to all these things. Why are you still concerned about them? Verse 21, you see the quotation marks here. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He's saying that's what these jerks in Colossae are saying. These, these bad leaders. These rules, which have to do with the things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teaching. Such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom, but their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So like many things in the Bible, what's required is a nuanced vision. Some people read this and go, oh, we can be hedonists. We can just, he says, these people who are not letting them touch and handle and taste, that they're the bad guys, so we should touch and handle and taste everything, right? And if you read the rest of the Bible, you know that's ridiculous. He's saying they're introducing new extra-biblical instructions that don't fit with what we've got here. The Bible does require that we practice self-denial, right? Yeah, we are supposed to be, he says, you're being very disciplined, and that's a good thing. We're supposed to be disciplined and self-controlled. But when somebody comes along and goes, oh, actually the standard is higher than what the Bible says, and you need to do this, otherwise you won't get up to the same level of heaven as me. And this is what happens in Mormonism, by the way. There are a lot of different spiritual traditions that, that are in the world today that do the same sin. Paul rebukes that and says, we know only Christ, and we only know him through his word. Anything else is of the evil one. I've spoken very plainly on these things today. I hope it remains plain and clear in your head. And I hope you go home with new clarity that yes, there is a world that is seeking to distract me, but my central focus is on Christ and Him alone. Every other path leads to destruction. Amen.